Well, good morning, First Free Church. It's great to be with you guys uh, this morning. My name is Steve. I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. Uh, And we are in Christmas season. It is upon us. It is beautiful. Thanksgiving, even though that's my favorite holiday, is over. And does anyone find Thanksgiving, like, truly restful? Because I feel like it's a great holiday But at the very end of it, I'm like, all right, when's Christmas? I need my Christmas break. Like, it just leaves me wanting, it's like a teaser for Christmas. And so now all the the Christmas decorations and everything are up. Now that Thanksgiving is over, okay, you have to wait till after Thanksgiving, I'm just saying. All right, if any of you put your decorations up before Thanksgiving, just know that the world silently judges you, okay? And now maybe this, this could just be because, you know, my mom raised me to believe that because she loves me. Um, it, it could be it. Uh, but <clears throat> but I, do have to, I do have to confess something to you all, and I hope you can help just, this is a really transparent moment for me. Um, my wife and I put up Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving this year, okay? And so I just wanted to publicly apologize to you all and confess our sin uh, this morning, okay? Um, But in all seriousness, where does it end? You know, if we start the decorations earlier and earlier every year, now like the radio stations play Christmas stuff the day after Halloween, I mean, that's just messed up. Where does it end, people? Right? And there's like a Christmas in July, which don't get me started with that. Why wouldn't it be Christmas in June since it's actually like six months away and it's halfway through the year? It just doesn't make sense, all right? Now, that has nothing to do with the sermon this morning, okay? So I just, I just wanted to make my thoughts and opinions uh, aware, make you all aware of those. Uh, <clears throat> but we're in a series called A Thrill of Hope, and so we're looking at uh, the hope that we have in Jesus, which is, of course, the reason we celebrate uh, Christmas. And so we're on week three, week number one, uh, Adam uh, uh, took us back to the creation of mankind with Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, and we saw a need for hope because Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And, and because of the sin that entered into their hearts when they disobeyed God, they were separated from God. And since then, all of humankind has been separated from God. And so there's a, a real need for hope. And then last week, we saw a, a promise of hope, not just a promise of hope, but many promises of hope throughout the history of God's nation, the nation of Israel. And over and over, they realize they need God, they need hope in God. And over and over, God gives them hope over the course of hundreds of years. He keeps promising hope, promising hope, promising hope, until eventually Jesus came and fulfilled those many promises. And so this morning, we're going to follow a story that some of us are familiar with, some of us may not be as familiar with. Uh, it's in the book of Luke, and, and if, if you're familiar with your, with your Bible, the, the book of Luke is often where we kind of see the, the classic Christmas story, right? Like the angels are out, in the, or the shepherds are out in the field, and the angels pro- shine uh, brightly and appear brightly before them and declare, hey, there's a Messiah, he's in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, and then they go, and then the wise men go, and it's all this like party in the manger. And, and it's such a beautiful story, and we hear that every Christmas, but there's actually a story before this story that's kind of the prequel to the story, and I think it's an important story that helps us uh, shed some more light onto the birth of Jesus and the coming of the Messiah. And it's following a, a married couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth. And, and this couple, uh, they're about to give 
uh, they're, they're about to uh, experience some, some incredible uh, blessings from God. So <clears throat> if you want to turn with me to your, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be uh, starting in verse 5 and moving on there. We're going to cover a lot of ground uh, this morning. If, if you have your phone, you can also use the YouVersion app and, and look up First Free in there, and we have the notes on there as well. Um, Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. So starting in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. So here we have two people to start the gospel of Luke. It's Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And, and Zechariah is a priest, and he's actually from a priestly line. And his wife, Elizabeth, too, is not only from a priestly line, she is from the priestly line. She comes from the high priest, the original high priest, Aaron. And so they have a history of being uh, priests. And they're faithful to God, we see. They're, they're faithful people to God. But we see another really intimate detail in their lives. We see that Elizabeth is unable to conceive. And some of you this morning have experienced the pains and the struggles of infertility. Some of you know the difficulty it is to want to raise children and not have the ability to. And Zechariah and Elizabeth have that pain. And compounded with that pain, they not only have that constant reminder that they can't raise a kid who they can love and cherish, but culturally, this was even harder because culturally, women at this time, the primary role of women was to uh, uh, give birth to and raise children, and that's where they found their identity, that's where they found all their joy. And so for a woman to be told you can't have a child, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing and there was shame, and there was a, a bit of a, of a lack of identity, a bit of an identity loss in that. So it was painful going, am I a real woman if I can't give birth? And so it was a hard point for them. And they were growing old and things were starting to become hopeless. And I can't help but notice that there's also multitudes praying outside the temple. During this time, the people of Israel would gather together and they'd pray outside of the temple And obviously, they're, they're, they're praying for their sins. They're trying to, to, to seek forgiveness of their sins. But there's, I think there's another underlying desperation in their prayers. You see, the nation of Israel has been had all these promises of hope over the course of history. But for 400 years, they've been in exile. They've been ruled by other nations. And they haven't heard anything from God in 400 years. And so they're praying desperately, God, you promised us some deliverance. You promised us salvation. Where is it? And they're starting to become hopeless. And so Zechariah is chosen to go into, uh, to, to be part of the temple uh, 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 <clears throat> worship these two weeks. So they do two weeks out of the whole year. These priests would actually get to be part of the temple. And then uh, it says he was cast, they cast lots and he drew the lucky straw. And 
he got to go into the holy place. And for a priest, if you, if you even got to go into the holy place, it was only once in your lifetime. So this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So you know that Zechariah was going in with this burden of infertility and this pain in his heart as he walked into the presence of God. The holy place was where the presence of God resided. So there's this desperation, not just in Zechariah and Elizabeth, but in the whole nation of Israel praying to God around them. And some of you this morning, you're struggling right now in your faith. You have something that you're desperately praying and crying out to God. There's something that you are just wanting so desperately from God, whether it's for your own uh, family or, or, or friends, or it's just something between you and God, and you are just struggling. And let me tell you, Zechariah and Elizabeth are right there with you. And the whole nation of Israel right there with you in this story. They're wrestling with God, and they're crying out to Him in their pain. As we continue in verse 6, we see God's great sovereignty unveiled in this story. It says, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring to you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to, unable to speak until the child is born. From my words, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. Zechariah, while in the holy place, has this terrifying yet amazing vision, an angel of the Lord standing before him and saying, Zechariah, God is here with you. God has heard your prayers, and God is answering your prayers, and you are going to have a child. And it's this incredible moment. He says, you're going to name this child John. And John means literally God is gracious. God is saying, I am a good gift giver to you. Now, for those of you, especially husbands, who around the Christmas times tend to forget about buying gifts until Christmas Eve, here's what you don't want to try to do, okay? Don't use this as biblical justification to go, all right, I'm just going to put on here to my lovely wife from your gracious gift-giving husband who I need to remind you didn't have to buy you this but did anyway because I'm a gracious gift-giver. That's not going to work, okay? Only Jesus has the or only God has the right to call himself a good gift-giver. And so uh, John is joyful, but amidst the joy, there comes a little doubt. And, and, and uh, or I'm sorry, and Zechariah doubts. 
this angel. And he says, <clears throat> what to, how do I know that you're telling the truth? And I love this response by Gabriel. Gabriel's like, all right, you want proof? You, boom, silence. You can't talk for nine months straight. And some of you are like, man, if my spouse got that gift, that would be amazing. Just kidding. That would be terrible. You shouldn't ever wish that upon your spouse. Um, <clears throat> But he was silenced for nine months. And I think that's just awesome. It makes me think of a judge who uh, went viral a few years ago and he would always try to do like a punishment fits the crime scenario. So he'd always give an option to these more like petty crimes and he'd say, all right, you can spend three months in jail or you can do this alternative that's more of a, uh, helping you learn your lesson. And so he, uh, like, like one lady, she, she was caught littering, was convicted. And, and he said, look, you can spend X amount of days in jail or you can spend a week in a dump picking up trash in the dump and she's like well I'd rather the dump than jail and it was awesome because she learned a lesson after a week of like wow there's a lot of trash and I shouldn't want to litter and so that was just a, a really cool thing again has nothing to do with the sermon I just thought that was a cool judge you should look him up anyways so Zachariah doubts this promise and he says I want cold hard evidence Give me the cold, hard evidence, the facts I want to lay it out. And, and it sounds pretty familiar in our culture today because our culture, we elevate physical evidence. We elevate physical truth over spiritual truth. And, and we're actually pretty unique in that. Ever since the 18th century of the Reformation in Europe and in, in our Western society, we've started to think that physical evidence, the evidence that we see and sense with our five senses, is somehow more uh, truth than spiritual truths, right? And, and we're, we are very unique in that. And you go, well, that's been like 300 years. Yeah, but when you're talking thousands of years, civilizations never would have considered these five senses to be the only source of truth, but that there's spiritual truths that are beyond our senses that are just as true and just as valid. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, all right, let's let go of science because science, I'm not one of those guys, okay? I think science is so important and science is so great. The discipline of science is, is studying God's nature and, and it helps us have a greater appreciation for God's nature. In fact, there's many people who come to know Jesus because of the overwhelming evidence as they're uh, searching different, uh, uh, studying in different disciplines, whether it's anatomy or biology or chemistry or whatever it is, and they see and they go, this is irrefutable. There has to be a creator because of the complexity complexities of nature, and it's amazing. So, so science and philosophy and these things that we can use our five senses for are so important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're not important. In fact, uh, even uh, God's Word says in, in Psalms 19, 1 through 2, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make Him known. God's creation shows his goodness and love and care when we just experience it with our senses, and that's so important. But despite the powerful role that the physical, cold, hard, physical evidence has, there's more to faith than just the things we can experience through our senses. As there are spiritual truths that can be just as authoritatively true as scientific fact. The author of Hebrews says this about faith. He says, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. There's a level to our faith in God that isn't rooted in the physical evidence of this world. Guys, when we have faith like Zechariah and Elizabeth and the nation of Israel, we're hoping that what God's word is true, that he is faithful. 
And again, this isn't blind faith. Don't subscribe to this idea that we just have to like blindly follow Jesus and ignore everything else. Like don't touch science because it's gonna prove God wrong, right? No, we, we wanna live in, in the tension of that. Here, here's why I think so many people are turned off from Christianity in America. I think we as Christians don't like the discomfort of living in tension. See, it's human nature to take a pendulum shift from one extreme to the other. We either say, no, it's all about the evidence. I want evidence, evidence, evidence. I want all of this. And, and faith, I'm going to be skeptical about it in every regard. But then others go, I don't want to look at any of that because that's going to, you know, that's going to ruin my faith. And I have to just blind faith. Jesus, take the wheel. All right? We take those pendulum shifts, but God is asking us to live in the tension in so many areas. And we as Christians need to embrace that, even when it's uncomfortable. Tension is not meant to be comfortable. It's meant to stretch us and grow us. And this is so uh, important when we think about student ministries, student ministries, our, our middle school and our high school students, they, they struggle with questions. They struggle with doubts. And that is a great thing. And that is a natural thing. And we want them to be able to, to work through these doubts and these questions so that they can, can eventually uh, graduate high school with a faith of their own. And in, in, in junior high, we say that we want our students to find family and own their faith. We want them to find family in their community because uh, it's so important, we believe, to have a community of, of, of other believers to build us up. But we want them to own their faith. Why? Because so many high school students graduate, go off to college or a job, and they lose their faith within just a matter of months. Why? Because they didn't have a faith of their own. They had a faith of their parent or uh, a teacher or a pastor who crammed their faith down their throats. Because they had people who didn't want them to live in the tension of having questions and doubts and said, no, 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 here's all the answers. I'm going to shovel it in so that you don't make mistakes. Because we should embrace with our, with our students, we should embrace as a church their questions and their doubts and walk alongside them and say, yes, yes, that is such a good question and I don't have the answer for you. And even if I do, I just want to walk with you. While they're in an environment where they're surrounded by other Christian believers who can help build them up and encourage them. Because the reality is once they graduate high school, no matter what we try to do, students are going to be slapped in the face with tension every day of their lives. So do we prepare them to wrestle through those now? And it starts with the adults, the church community. It starts with you and me being okay to have questions and doubts of our own. It starts with us being able to live in the tension and say, you know what, I, I'm going to trust in God, but I do have some questions and I do have some doubts. Live in the tension of acknowledging our own doubts and lean into them and seek answers. If you're here today and you've never struggled with doubts, I'm here to challenge you and say, I don't think you take your faith seriously enough. Because if you're taking your faith seriously, you're going to have questions, you're going to have doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is. Let me say that again. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is faith necessitates that there will always be some level of doubt that we're wrestling with. If you've had the same, uh, the same doubt for the past 20 years, 
you haven't been dealing with that doubt. You haven't been addressing that doubt. Because doubt is something we need to be wrestling with, and, and we need to, we need to uh, keep growing in, keep going. And, and once we kind of, all right, I feel good about this, well, then something else is going to pop up. And that's part of the journey with Jesus. Walking with Christ is a journey of, of constant questions and difficulties and struggles. And as we go through them, God's allowed us to go through them so that we can grow in intimacy with him. When we lean into the doubts and the tension in our lives— and the questions we have, with the right posture, we grow into a sweeter intimacy with Christ than we never would have if we didn't have those difficulties. <clears throat> if you still don't believe that we're going to have doubts and that it's okay as Christians, let me, let me just quick take you over to John chapter 20. Um, you can turn with me or we'll have it up on the screen. But in John chapter 20, Jesus has lived his life and dies on the cross for the sins of mankind. And then the greatest event in human history, he raises from the dead three days later. He raises from the dead, he's like, all right, I'm gonna go show myself to my disciples, my best friends. They were the closest people Jesus had on earth. And so he goes and he, he reveals himself to the disciples who thought he was dead, who were mourning, who were hiding, and they rejoice. They're like, Jesus is alive, he's back. This is amazing, and they're partying, and they're celebrating, and then eventually Jesus is like, all right, I got to go show myself to some other guys. I'll see you later. And they're like, oh my gosh, that is so great. But there was one guy missing. That guy's name was Thomas. Thomas missed the party. And so he comes by later, and the disciples are like, Thomas, you missed it. Jesus is alive. And Thomas is like, uh, dudes, were you... Did you, are you like hallucinating? Like, Jesus died. Like, no, he came back from the dead. And Thomas says in John chapter 25, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Which, real quick, that is disgusting, okay? Do we have, did you ever think about that? For those of you who've heard this story, like, he's not just like, hey, I just want to see the nail. He's like, no, I want to, like, stick my finger in there, get some of that jelly in there. No, like, that's disgusting. Anyways, he says, no, I want to see it for myself, I don't believe it. I want to see it for myself before I believe. And so a week goes by. Thomas, by the end of the week, is probably feeling pretty good about themselves, about himself. Like, yep, see, he's not showing up. And then day eight, Jesus shows up. And what's really cool is that here's this moment. Thomas, I imagine, is looking at Jesus across the room in, in just total awe and this guilt weighing over him. Like, I can't believe I disbelieved. And Jesus, rather than walking up to him and just giving him like a holy smackdown versus raw, throwing him down for disbelieving, he, he looks at him and, and he has compassion. He says, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side and don't be faithless any longer, but believe. And Jesus has compassion on Thomas and just shows him. Now, would Jesus have rathered Thomas not doubted? Of course. Of course Jesus would have rathered that. That's why uh, two verses later, he says, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And that's you and I. Right? No, none of us have seen the physical resurrection of Jesus, but we're blessed if we believe in him through faith. But Jesus has compassion on us. Not if we doubt, but when we doubt. So before we move any further, I need you to be okay with doubt. Can we do that? 
Can we admit it's okay to be human? It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have struggles. Can we admit that that's actually, when Christians take their faith seriously, they're going to have doubts. Can I not be the only person in this room that struggles with doubt? And can we see doubt more as a temptation than a sin? Here's what I mean by that. We all have temptations. We can't help having temptations. We just get them. They're, they're sometimes crazy and weird, like we're in a store and we're like, oh, I wonder if I could steal that. And we're like, no, I shouldn't have thought that. But we just have them. They just come up. The, this is totally, you're going to see how corrupt and depraved I am. But we were, um, my wife and I went out to Pennsylvania for Thanksgiving. We drove like 28 hours in, in five days. And on the long drive, at one point, I'm sitting in the car driving, and this thought just pops up, and maybe you've had this before, and it's a horrible thought. You just think, I'm going 80 miles an hour right now, and all it would take is just a quick wrist flip, and we're like just done. We're toast. Like it's just a pile of wreck, and we're dead, right? And, and I don't want that thought. It's not like I'm like, <laughs> like I, it just pops into my head, and it's like, a, whoa, where did that come from? And I have options, right? I have, I have choices to make. I can, one, go, well, it came into my head, so, and do it, right? Or I can, or I could, I could go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have this thought, and feel terrible, and like, pull over to the side of the road, and just sit there, just weeping, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I had this thought, I'm terrible, and, and feel so guilty about it, or what, what else can I do? I can fight it, and say, well, that's a stupid idea, not going to do that, because, one, I love the people in the car, including my wife, and two, I'm scared of my mother-in-law if I crash her car, right? So, like, there's the fighting of it. And, and I hope we can look at doubt the same, that we don't, we don't just give into it and go, well, I had a question about my faith. Guess that faith's dead. Oh, well. We don't want to go, oh my gosh, I have, I have this doubt, I have this question, I need to hide it from everyone because no one can know. Bad, only bad Christians have doubts or questions. No, rather, we should accept it, openly talk about it, and fight it, and, and wrestle with it, and seek truth, and seek the answers. Can we do that? If, if we can't do that this morning, I don't think there's anything we can learn this morning. But, but, but if you're willing to say, yes, I want to step into doubt, I want to step into the tension, even if it's hard, then I think, I think we can see Jesus and the grace of God in greater ways than we've ever seen before if we're willing to take those hard steps into our doubt and into our struggles. So doubting our faith <clears throat> is okay. But this begs the question within our story, if, if doubting's okay, why? Why did Gabriel then seemingly punish Zechariah when Zechariah didn't believe. I mean, we see it in the story. Zechariah is like, oh, I don't believe it. And Gabriel's like, fine, then you're going to be silent for nine months. Like, why would he do that? Let's keep reading. Luke chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterwards, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. So Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and she gets the same joyous news. And then she does this weird thing, though. 
She, she praises God, but then she hides. It says she hides for five months. Maybe she was afraid, but, but I think uh, uh, what a lot of scholars believe is true in that it was a scary thing. Right? She was just told that her husband comes home and doesn't speak and decides to play charades and is like, hey, you, and she's like, are you calling me fat? And there's just this whole, and then she finally finds out he's trying to tell her she's pregnant, but he's not talking. And, and she's like, am I actually pregnant? I'm too old to be pregnant. I, and I've struggled to be pregnant my whole life. And so I think, I think it's pretty reasonable to think that Elizabeth had some doubt too. She hid for five months because she wanted to be sure that this was real. And uh, what's really cool though is she hides and what does she do? She worships God. She goes, you know what? I might be scared. I I may not even fully 100% believe this. And it's a weird thing. But it is nice that my husband's not talking. But she says... I'm going to praise God and worships God. This is an entirely different posture than that of Zechariah. See, they both doubted, but Zechariah demanded evidence. And, and, and just think about this. Zechariah demanded evidence from what? From an angel that's standing before him in the holy place, in the presence of God, with all the glory of God. And he's going, I don't believe you. Right? Like, I want more evidence. And, he, and he, he, he demands more evidence, and it's ridiculous. Because, <clears throat> guys, Zachary's sin wasn't that he didn't know everything. Neither did Elizabeth. But instead of seeking more of God, he sought more evidence. You see, I think Zechariah had a posture of pride. He didn't care what anyone was going to say to him. Even an angel coming before him and he still demanded more evidence. And a posture of pride can never have enough evidence. We think Zechariah is being ridiculous. Zechariah had a posture of pride. He thought it was all about him, him, him. He trusted himself more than he trusted anyone else, including God, including this angel. And he elevated himself and decided to try to take matters in his own hands and sought more evidence. But the problem with the posture of pride is it just always demands more evidence. So we look at that and say it's ridiculous, but the reality is sometimes when we're asking for evidence, when we're demanding more evidence before we believe, the reality is we have all the evidence we need. Romans 1, Paul, Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that ever since the foundation of the world God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Paul says, look, look around you. You just have to go into the woods and see the trees and the grass and the the, the sun and the clouds, and you don't even need a magnifying glass. Just look at it and hear the sounds and see how amazingly beautiful this creation is and that there is a creator who put care and time into this. That's all the evidence you need. But a posture of pride says, no, I need more evidence. There's a difference between crying out to God when we have doubts and questions because we want his presence and just critically doubting all that he's promised to us with a a posture of pride. Listen, no matter how much evidence you have, you can always cast doubt on something. You can always cast doubt on something. 
when we talk about our faith, if you continue to ask questions and delve deeper and deeper and deeper, and, you, and, and trust me, you can get deeper and deeper and see even more of, uh, just have more confidence in God and more faith in God and more trust in God, but there's always, always, always the, when, even when things are so stacked in the existence of God's favor, and we still can put doubt into it. You can always put even the tiniest seed of doubt into anything you want. My, I remember my first uh, philosophy class in, uh, in college. My philosophy professor got up there and said that his first philosophy class of college, he almost decided not to major in philosophy. Because he, he got in, he sat down, and he's kind of excited to, you know, talk about all the philosophers and Plato and da 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 And, and his uh, professor walks in brings a stool and just sets it in the middle of the, of the room. And he goes, how do we know that this stool is real? And you know, some naive, you know, some guy who's like, oh, I got this. It's because you brought it out. And so like, we know that it's real because you're, you're touching it right now. And he's like, yeah, but how do you know for a fact that this isn't just all like some illusion? I mean, how can you prove to me that this is real? And he's like, well, I could sit in it. It's like, yeah, but how could you prove to me that you're actually sitting in it and that it's not just like you're floating in midair and there's just the illusion of a stool here. And like half the class was like, all right, I'm done. I'm just gonna go be a, a psychiatry major or something, okay? A psychology major, right? This is, and and <clears throat> the point was though, you can cast doubt into anything. We can't fully 100% prove anything because there will always be something that you can doubt, okay? I mean, I could even cast doubt on the fact that I'm incredibly attractive. Like, I can just do that. Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> we can put doubt in anything if we, have a, if we have a posture of pride. Usually we can't help doubt any more than we can help feeling angry at times, but do we allow that doubt to man- manifest itself into prideful rejection of the promises of God? Or do we allow it to awaken in us a deeper desire to follow Jesus and need him? Because Elizabeth responded differently than her husband. She had a posture of seeking. She left and she went, I have these doubts, but I'm going to go seek God and worship him. Despite the craziness of his promise, and a posture of seeking can never have enough of Jesus. Posture of pride can never have enough evidence, but a posture of seeking can never have enough of Jesus. See, both postures still have doubt. Both are constantly in need. Both are are, are craving something more and more and want something more and more. But one seeks anywhere they can other than Jesus, and the other seeks Jesus himself. One cannot get enough of evidence even when they have Jesus. And the other can't get enough of Jesus even when they have doubts. One leads to hopelessness and the other leads to the hope that's only found in Jesus. And Elizabeth chose the latter. She chose to seek God and worship him amidst doubt and fear. Like I mentioned earlier, being a Christian requires us to live in tension. Did you know it's possible? to actually have doubts and question God and still desperately seek him and want him and and crave his presence and, and enjoy his presence even amidst doubting? We can do that. That's a posture of seeking. 
See, most of us in this room, we can acknowledge that God is a good God, right? We've got Bible verses on our mugs and on our phone backgrounds and on our walls and all these things. And we go, yeah, that's such a pretty verse. God is good. But when things are hard or we're struggling to see that God is good, we don't fully believe it. We have a hard time believing that God has a good plan for us in the midst of it. And in our pride, we decide, I, you know what, I've got I've to, you know, get my, pick up my bootstraps, pick myself up on my bootstraps and, and figure this out. I've got a 17-step program to get me, myself out of this depression or anxiety or, or these fears or this loneliness or whatever it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. It just leads, we just spiral down. I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything when we're in a, a struggle or a doubt or whatever it is. I mean, even the posture of seeking has a pretty active verb in it, right? Seeking. But like we said before, both postures are pretty similar in that they admit they have doubts. Both postures are seeking answers. The difference usually isn't in the actions. See, the difference of posture is a difference of heart, and our hearts are between us and God. So what does a heart do when it has a posture of seeking? I think the answer is in what Gabriel does to Zechariah. Through Gabriel, God gives Zechariah a sign, and not just a sign, but a lesson. And I think this lesson is so applicable to us today in our busy, fast-paced culture, where there's screens and just buzz, 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 we just go so fast through our culture, and it's hard to keep up, and this is such a great lesson. See, uh, Gabriel just goes, all right, Zechariah, shut up. And he just silences Zechariah for nine months just stops Zechariah from talking. Why? Because he gives Zechariah the opportunity to seek his voice, to seek God's voice. We call that listening, right? A posture, a posture of seeking is a posture of listening. Think about it. When I remember when I was in high school and in college and trying to find my wife, you know, seeking for that lady who was going to be lucky enough to be my wife. And I was looking around, and, and what did I do? I took girls on dates, and, I, and what did I do? I sat there for an hour and just talked to their ears off. No, some of you have had that date experience before. Terrible. No, what did I do? I asked questions, and I listened to what they had to say so I could learn more about them. Because so I was seeking And God gave the chance for Zechariah to do the same. I love this little throwback that Gabriel gives in uh, verse 17. If you go back, he, he says that his son John's going to be in the power of Elijah. And I think it's so cool that he mentions Elijah. Because for those of you who are not familiar with the story of Elijah, Elijah was a prophet and Elijah was a bold man of God. Elijah stood up to an entire kingdom. The king and queen were the most wicked people in the nation of Israel at the time. And Elijah stood up there and, was, and, and stood before the king and spoke God's truth and said, you are following other gods. Your wife is a prostitute. Your wife is this horrible person, like trashed his wife for like 10 minutes and, and just went, just spoke truth hard on this guy, on the king of Israel who had the power to kill anyone he wished. So what did the king do? The king didn't like that. 
The king sought to kill Elijah. And so Elijah had to run for his life. So he runs away, and he's one of the only people in the entire nation of Israel that even follows God. And he finds himself in the wilderness. It says, God, just, just give me some food. So God gives him food, and God gives him a nap. But, but it says that Elijah is depressed and hopeless. Elijah's sitting there and goes, God, what the heck? You had me declare the truth. I followed you faithfully to the T. I stood before the king and spoke truth. And for what? You just sent me to the wilderness and I'm the only faithful person in this entire nation. Just kill me now. He says that. Just let me die. And God says, Elijah, come here. And he brings Elijah up to a mountainside. This is Elijah sitting there. You know, he's waiting to hear from God. And a giant earthquake comes and shakes the whole foundation of the mountain. And, and Elijah's just stunned before this earthquake. And then after the earthquake, it says there's a giant whirlwind that comes through. And Elijah's like, what the? And it says that uh, after that, a giant fire comes through, this consuming fire. And Elijah's just so wowed by this. But, but the text explicitly says God was not in any of those. And then it says, I think, just such a beautiful, beautiful part of the story. There was a still, small voice, and God was there. And God spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. And for me, I think some of my most meaningful times with God have been in the quiet of my room, on my knees before him, or in nature, walking just in the woods by myself with him, in silence because I allow myself to hear from him. Guys, God doesn't often speak in the busyness. He often speaks in quiet ways in the silence. And this moment of silence for Zechariah was certainly a milestone as you can imagine we jump ahead to uh, verses 57 through 67 in Luke 1. It says, When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. That must have been a party. Just, okay, we won't go there. Uh, they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, No, his name is John. What? They exclaimed. There's no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father when he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, and, ever, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, His name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. All fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, What will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. And then there's this beautiful poem that Zechariah gives declaring the Messiah. And it's, it's just so cool. You see, Zechariah was a priest. He was meant to be an advocate for the people. But he didn't, have a, he didn't give God a reason to use him. He didn't, he didn't have a reason to speak to the people on behalf of God, so God silenced him and gave him a reason. 
And man, what a reason it was, because once Zechariah, after this nine months of silence, he finally has this t- all that time to reflect and hear God's verse, and he gets to do what no other priest was able to do. He got to declare the coming of the Messiah was right around the corner. He got to declare to the people that, hey, my son is going to prepare the way for the, the, the God's son who's going to come and save us. What a reason that was. But he first had to sit in the silence for a long time. Oftentimes, we finally stop and listen to God is when he finally gives us a reason to speak and bless his name. Sometimes maybe God is just asking us to stop talking. I mean, I pray, but a lot of times it's me just blabbering on and on. And God, help this and help this. And I'm, and I'm thanking God and praising God and, and asking him for requests for other people and, and wrestling with God. And I just, I ask all this in and I just keep babbling on and on and on. And I never just stop to think, man, what, God, what are you trying to say to me? And listen to his voice, that still small voice. Man, when we do, I think God gives us some great reasons to speak. So when is the last time you listen to God? I'm not saying don't ever talk about your fears and your doubts with God. Please talk to God as much as you can. When's the last time you just stopped and listened to him amidst the doubts, amidst the fears, and tried to hear that still small voice? Some of you are doubting your faith, whether it's the goodness of God or the existence of God or the, the, the power of God, whatever it is, or God's plan for your life, and you're just, you're having doubts and you're having questions in your faith, and that's okay. If I'm being transparent, I've struggled with stuff recently. I don't have time to get into all of that, but I've struggled with questions in my faith with God. What is your posture amidst the doubting? It is it a posture demanding from God more evidence? Is it a posture of trying to do it all yourself? Is it a posture of saying, you know what, I actually kind of trust myself more than I trust God? It's a posture of saying, man, I just want to seek Jesus through this. I want Jesus more than anything. Yes, I want, I want my questions answered. Yes, I, I want this to be resolved. But more than anything, Jesus, I need you. And I want to hear from you. And some of you, this morning when you've been struggling for a long time, maybe it's been weeks or months or years and you've been struggling with the same thing, whatever it is, maybe it's infertility or insecurity or it's depression or it's anxiety or it's uh, uh, loneliness or it's just for, for the sake of someone you love. And you've just been crying out to God. You've heard nothing. I want to ask you to just take, take a moment and have some self-reflection. Has, has there been pride in your heart? Have there been moments during this wrestling that if you're truly honest with you, with yourself, in your heart, you trust yourself more than you trust God. 
you have a hard time actually trusting God. You're really just demanding more of him instead of like asking for him and seeking him and humbling yourself before him. I know for me, that was really hard. To say, God, I keep saying I believe in you. I keep saying I trust in you. But then I just go off and do my own thing. Because I really just trust myself more than I trust you. I think Chris, the, the Christmas time is upon us, and I think this is such a beautiful season, beautiful opportunity for us to finally slow down. And some of you go, slow down for Christmas. Yeah, right. That's not, not possible. I think we can. If we're truly intentional, we can slow down. It's such a great time to spend time with family and friends, but it's also a great time to reflect on all that God has done for us. I mean, listen to half the songs on the radio are songs about Jesus, and it's awesome. It should be a time more than any that we start to listen to what God's saying to us. For those of you who are wrestling in your faith, or wrestling with an issue or a struggle, and you've been doing it for a long time, and you say, you know what, Steve, honestly, I've, I've had a posture of seeking all this time. And God still hasn't answered me. And I've listened and I haven't heard anything. And I wish I could tell you I had an answer. I don't. I wish I could say that God's going to answer tomorrow and you'll be great. I can't. But I can say that God is faithful and he has hope. And he alone has hope. I mean, we mentioned the nation of Israel during that time when Zechariah was in the temple, the nation of Israel, been waiting for 400 years of silence. I mean, that's generations and generations of people who spent their whole life on their knees praying to God, why won't you deliver us? And God, we just want you. We just need you. Why, where is your Messiah? And they lived their whole life and died without once getting an answer. And yet God had a plan. And eventually God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And what a beautiful, beautiful reminder. So what is your posture? What is your posture amidst your doubts, amidst questions, amidst struggles? Is it a posture of pride or is it a posture of seeking Jesus? This is such a, uh, I love Christmas and I love that despite our sin, despite our wickedness, I mean, the culture around us likes to say that human beings are generally good, but God's word says, no, human beings are generally pretty evil. Right? We, parents, I don't have to convince you of that. Your kids from a young age learned how to disobey on their own, right? It's our job to, 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 to show the right way. We have, we have wickedness in our hearts. We are hopeless without God. We're separated from God, but God loves us so much. God shows his love for us and that while we were enemies to him, while we were sinners, he, Christ died for us, sent his son Jesus to die a sinner's death so that we might have freedom from our sin, freedom from the chains that hold us down and spend eternity with him. So this morning for those, uh, some of you this morning, you you. you God's convicting you. 
God's showing you your pride. God's showing you that if you're honest with yourself, your heart has been one of hardness towards him. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you've never, you've never wanted to accept this reality of God, this reality of Christ, because you want things your way. So I want to give an opportunity for us this morning to just respond. To just say, you know what, God, I'm done with this posture of pride because I'm done with this hopelessness. And I want the hope that comes through you, Jesus, because I need you. So would you just bow your heads with me? Bow your heads and close your eyes. And there's anyone here who this morning is feeling this tug on their heart. This tug to be united with your creator. You just say, man, this morning, I just want to put aside my pride and I just want Jesus. Yeah, I have questions. Yeah, I have doubts. I don't have it all figured out, but I just want Jesus. If that's you this morning, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand? Just so we can be praying for you. Just raise your hand. I see hands up all over the place. Thank you. Anyone else with heads bowed, eyes closed, just, just raise a hand and say, you know what, I'm, I, I want to set aside my pride and I want to trust Jesus this morning. This is so important. Only in God do we have hope. For those of you who raised your hand, or, or maybe those of you who didn't want to raise your hand, but, but you feel that tugging on your heart, and you say, you know what, I just need to put my trust in Jesus again. Again, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, would you just pray with me in your heart and join me in this? Because for those of you who have been a Christian for a long time, this prayer, it, this isn't a prayer that we just pray one time and we're done. This is a prayer that should be a daily prayer of humbling ourselves, of posturing, posturing ourselves towards seeking God each and every day of our lives. So would you just join me in this prayer? God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up along the way. I know I've disobeyed so many times. I know that I like my way more than your way. But God, I know my way hasn't led to the joy that I seek. God, I know that you love me despite my failures. And God, I know that you sent your son Jesus die on the cross for my sins and I thank you for that. And I want to put my trust in you this morning. I want to put my trust in you every day. Not because I have 100% certainty, but because I have faith in the hope that you give. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to walk with you. God, I thank you for these individuals this morning who maybe for the first time put their trust in you. Maybe they're rededicating their life to you. God, I just pray that you would walk with each and every one of us. God, if there's someone else in this room who's still holding up a posture of pride, who's still holding up the walls, who's demanding evidence from you, that you would humble them and show them that you have the hope that they're seeking. 
God, for each and every one of us. Let us go out in your grace. This Christmas season, let us find time. Give us the strength to have the intentionality to find time to just listen to you. And God, would this be a church that is on fire for you because of the words you're giving us. Let us be able to share as a community with, the, with each other the words that you give us. That we might spur one another on to greater works. God, let this church be a catalyst for change in this community. Let us see just chains broken, lives healed, people coming to their knees before their father for the first time because of this church community and their, their posture of seeking you. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name. Amen. For those of you who decided this morning, hey, I just, I need to change my posture. And I want to have a posture of seeking this morning. Like I said, that's not just a one-time decision. It's a decision we make every day. And I just have a favor to ask of you. We're going to have a, a team of people up here after this song that are just here to pray for you. And if you prayed with me today, that prayer of trusting Jesus, would you just come up and receive prayer? This whole journey with Christ isn't meant to be alone. It's meant to be with others. And they're not, they're not going to ask you every detail of your life. They're not going to be interrogating. They just, they just want to know how they can pray for you. So would you just come up after this? Have the courage to come up and say, you know what? Like I humbled myself before my father, I'm going to have the humility to come up here and receive prayer for my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And I fully believe that God will use that act of courage to spur you on. I believe that God's going to use that prayer to move mountains. Let's pray, or let's worship together.